making ephahs small and shekels great. Like I said, I think probably many of us, I've learned this, we, the Bible is a translated document. I've heard, said this like 40 times, so you guys get the point. But um, when it's a translated document, what happens sometimes is that we hear it and, and it doesn't like, it doesn't read like normal English. And so a lot of times we kind of switch our brains off. And so um, when I read this passage, when it popped up in the lectionary, I, I read this passage like five times before I picked up anything from it at all. Like, okay, this is like one of the minor prophets, Amos. You know, if Matt Wendell was here, we would have had to sing Bob Stromberg's classic, When Justice Rolls Down, like a mighty water from like Chick, whatever that year was. Um, but I kept re- reading it, and I it's just kind of saying, well, what, what's Amos really talking about here? And it was really uh, tempted to just go right and preach about um, the Colossians, because this whole idea of like, Christ is the, invi- you know, the image of the invisible God. And so it's like systematic theology. They like teach us this stuff in seminary. That's just like a coast job, right? But, but as I read it, this, this line just really stuck out to me because I don't know about you, but I don't know what an ephah is. Anybody know what an ephah is? It's a measure of weight. I knew that Dale would know. That's why I asked. Um, Dale knows everything. Um, <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> and Dale's dad knows even more stuff. That's great. Um, uh, learn from your dads. That's important. Speaking, speaking of. Um, and, and so I was kind of, this, okay, this idea, I was like, really, what is it about? What, what's an, what is this concept about, making ephah small and shekels great? Well, as I read on and, and like studied it, I started to realize that this this is really a story about injustice. Really, that's, that's what it's about. It's, it's about uh, misrepresenting something that leads to injustice. In fact, that's exactly what the text says. And, and, and as I study the book of Amos more, um, I realize that really the whole book of Amos is about injustice. That's when, when it says, let justice roll down, that's the most uh, popular phrase from the book of Amos. If there's like one verse that you'd pull out and put on a pillow, this is the one. I, had a, I actually had a, a, a seminary professor who said, oh man, there's a lot of bikers out there. Um, I actually had a seminary professor who said that the book of Amos, uh, if you're an American and you read the book of Amos and you liked it, you probably didn't understand it. Because it's all about injustice. And um, it's not just injustice back then, it's about injustice now. There are things that we can apply very much so now that related to what was happening then. Okay, you kind of with me on this? This is, the, this is, this is all me approaching, because prophets, minor prophets, this is not my area of expertise. So, uh, so really we have to understand that the book of Amos in context this, this passage out of Amos does a good job of painting a picture for what most of the book of Amos is about. So to do this, I think we have to, uh, we have to ask a question, um, which is when I say injustice, what type of injustice am I talking about? I'm talking about injustice as it's, compar- as it's related to biblical justice. Biblical justice. This is important. This is important stuff because the Bible talks uh, a lot more about justice than it does about other things. We, we don't, 
The, the word for righteousness, you ever heard a sermon about righteousness from anyone, that's the same root word as justice. The Bible has a lot to say about justice. And in fact, if you, if you asked most people who don't go to church, what's the church all about? They would probably say something about, okay, well, you know, there's something about, you know, there's a sexual ethic there that's important. You know, there's, it's, it's something about, like, relationship with Jesus and love. But they probably wouldn't say justice, even though when it talks about the sexual ethics of the first, the first uh, disciples or, or the Hebrew people, that's actually a much smaller section of the text. That, that's a lot less, there's a lot less verses about um, any kind of individual issue that we would talk about today than there are about justice. Justice is the core. Justice is a bedrock principle. And so to understand this, I think we have to separate biblical justice from other types of justice, because here's the thing. As soon as you start conflating biblical justice with, with justice as it exists today, um, what you're going to do is you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna mess, mess up some terms. So here's, here's just a couple. I, didn't, uh, I don't have slides for these, but um, here's just a couple types of justice that we talk about today that are uh, either related or not related, maybe even antithetical to biblical justice. The first one pops out would be criminal justice, right? The idea, the idea of criminal justice is that you, um, you, you prosecute a person who has violated the laws of a municipal state or federal government. So there's a legislative body and they pass laws and then, and then if people break those laws, then you say, okay, well, they broke the law and then we, we're going to punish them. The goal of criminal justice is punishment. I want you to hear that, okay? This is important to understand. The goal of criminal justice is punishment. The goal, the goal of criminal justice is not restoration. The goal of biblical justice is restoration. But we, we, can, we can actually identify, we can see how the laws are written. The goal of criminal justice is not restoration. The sub-goal of punishment is, is, in one, to make whole the victim of a crime. So if anything, it's restoration for the victim of the crime, not restoration for the person who committed the crime. And, and, and we know that that actually is wildly ineffective. Most people, um, when a person who committed a crime against them is, uh, is prosecuted, they don't feel, they might feel before their, their sentence that, they're, that that's going to make them feel better, but afterwards, most, most people report it didn't make them feel any better, um, depending, you know, whatever the sentence was. And then on the other side, it's to deter, and this is what we really focus on in criminal justice, the, the sub-goal of punishment is to deter individuals from committing the same crime or the same individual from committing the same crime or other individuals from committing that crime. And, and also, we found that that's wildly ineffective. So, so basically, the goal of criminal justice is, to, is, is just to punish people for breaking laws. Um, and that's different than biblical justice, because like, like, like I said, the, Ultimately, criminal justice, if it was enacted perfectly, maybe it would lead to restoration. But as we know today, uh, it doesn't happen all the time. Then there's something I like to call grade school justice. You all know about grade school justice, all right? You can smile a little bit. Grade school justice is, uh, is, is underlying the bedrock of grade school justice is fairness, all right? Grade school justice is my nephew. Um, he's in grade school a couple weeks ago. We had them over to our house for my brother's birthday party, and um, they were, they, we don't have soda in our house, but my mom brings in soda for parties. She's like, they don't have the good stuff. 
I'm grandma's bringing. So grandma, you know, brings the Coke, a cola, um, and um, and and it turns out that his older sister, who's five years older than him, got to finish the rest of her dad's Coke and then got a fresh Coke when the pizza came out. And, and, and Ethan, he's younger, and so he didn't understand this because he thought we were waiting to dinner, till dinner to drink Coke. And so he wanted that little, that like backwash sip of dad's Coke. That was injustice. Haley got more than me. That's not fair. That's the bedrock of biblical justice. It's all about um, fairness. Another word for fairness in, in grade school justice is equity. Not equality, equity. Equality might be that the person who's older, whose metabolism is more mature, who's bigger, gets more Coca-Cola because their body can, can, uh, can handle it versus the little, like, nine-year-old or eight-year-old who's going to, like, bounce off the walls for 16 hours because he drank this Coke, right? That might be equality, but equity is just give me, give me exactly the same. doesn't matter if they're a grown-up or a kid. doesn't matter if they're five years older than me, ten years older than me. I want the same. And, and biblical justice isn't equity either. It's not everybody gets the same. And then there's social justice. And this is the term most conflated with biblical justice. People use these terms interchangeably, and they shouldn't be used interchangeably. They're very similar, but they shouldn't be used interchangeably because the, the, uh, the, the premise of social justice is not large enough to encompass biblical justice. It's just a part of biblical justice. And the idea behind social justice, the point is to create an equitable society by um, combating inconsistencies within a society that limit the rights and prospects for diverse individuals. The idea being that not everybody starts at the same place, and so social justice is, is trying to right those scales, and, and things like civil rights and affirmative action, combating housing discrimination, equal access to services, I'll go on beyond that, ability, disability claims, all these things are social justice pieces, and, and, and that's an important part of biblical justice, but it's not all biblical justice. Biblical justice is different. Because it is by very nature restorative. Say restorative. Restorative. This is the point of biblical justice. Biblical justice is restoration. And I think you could almost make the argument that the whole gospel is just restoration. That's what it's about. That's what the Colossians passage from this morning teaches us. God was reconciling himself to all things through Christ. He was trying to restore the world. And the chief goal of biblical justice is to prepare this world that we live in today for a new world. This is not our eternal... People like to say, we're going to go off to heaven. Well, the Bible actually teaches that heaven's going to come down to earth. So we're supposed to be preparing the soil for the new kingdom here. That's the goal. And the, the, you accomplish this goal by restoring human relationships with one another restoring humans' relationships to God, and restoring humans' relationships to the cosmos, which is a fancy word of saying everything that's ever been created. And it's grounded in one central theological concept, which is that every 
human being, this is important. If you take nothing else away, understand that this is what Amos is all about. This is where he gets all of his theology. He's focused on biblical justice because he understands this theological principle, which we fail to see a lot today. It's grounded in one theological concept. comes from Genesis, real early on in the Bible, that every single human being, regardless of their race, regardless of their gender, regardless of their national origin, their national origin, their sexual orientation, their religion, their political affiliation, their ability level, their socioeconomic status or their social status is intrinsically valuable because they bear the image of God. They are intrinsically valuable. Their life is intrinsically worth something. And so biblical justice is trying to reorient the world to a world where we see people as image bearers of God and therefore worthy, worthy of our affection and more importantly, worthy of justice. That's all it is. So let me give you a, an example from my childhood. Patty's Diner. Patty's Diner was that spot. All right? It was the place to be. Patty was the worst. Okay? You know what I'm talking about. I, if you don't, i got to wake you guys up because the, every, every town should have a diner like Patty's Diner. We had two diners like this in Evanston. One was called Sarkey's, and Sarkey's was a front for drugs, and it still is today. And I'm just like, internet, like I'm just telling you, like it is. Um, so you didn't have to pay at Sarkey's, Okay? You could just eat and walk out because they, they weren't worried about that. That's not where they're making their money. They're making money out the back. So that was not my place because uh, that was not what I was into. Patty's Diner was the other spot. When you pulled into Patty's Diner, there was no parking, okay? Restaurant, no parking. Okay, the fluorescent lights worked worse than any other place that I've ever seen in my life. Most of the bulbs were out or different colors, there was only two people who worked at Patty. Patty and whoever she hired. And she hired two people. The first person she hired was her sister, Susie. And then she fired Susie because Patty's the worst. And she hired her brother's ex-wife, Bridget, to be Susie's replacement. When you walked into Patty's diner, you sat at the diner, because you weren't a square sitting at the table. Um, you sat at the diner, you sat at the bar. Patty made the best food. She was written up for having a top 10 hamburger in the entire Chicagoland area, this dingy place that should have been put out of business. Um, but you sat down, and there were these little dinky paper menus, and uh, Patty would be like, what do you want? Like, immediately. And she, like, she was mean about it. I have some stories. You ever want to hear about the story of what happened on July 3rd? Oh, man. Apparently, Patty had a rule um, that the diner closed an hour early on days before holidays. That wasn't posted anywhere. Um, so a guy showed up to get food, and she was like, get out. Dude, no, she just locked the door. That's right. She just locked the door. We were all sitting in there just eating because like, we didn't know that it was closed. She just walked over and locked the door. And some guy came up, and he's like, Patty. And everyone in the restaurant's looking at this guy like, what in the heck is going on with this guy? And, and they're just, Patty and Susie are just ignoring him, completely pretending he doesn't. Finally, they open the door, and they go, Ralph, you can get a BLT and a cup of rice soup. Sit down. 
And he goes, fries? And she goes, no. <laughs> One time I was in there, some guy just came in and said, give me all of the bacon. <laughs> Patty's Diner was the worst. But here's the thing. The paper menus reflected the wrong prices. And at the bottom of the menu, it said, prices subject to change. The price, she said, I haven't reprinted these menus since the 90s. So you never knew what you were going to pay at Patty's Diner. You never knew. And when I went in there with Champro Sports Equipment, which was a, a reputable business that my father worked for, and everyone dressed in business casual every day, when these white, upper-middle-class men would come and sit at Patty's Diner, it was always over $12 for every single person. But when the homeless man came in, who would frequently come in, named Ralph, there was one time when he had no money. He's like, Patty, I'm sorry, I just can't pay. I just can't pay, Patty. I just needed some food. I'm really hungry. I just, I'm sorry, I can't, I don't have any money. And she was like, just give me a back massage. Literally. Patty's diner was the epitome of biblical justice. Not in a beautiful way. In a really ugly, weird way in a way where guys did her taxes and ate for free. But in the most beautiful way, Patty's Diner was the epitome of biblical justice because people paid what they could and no one ever went away hungry. Patty would tell you if she raised your prices and you'd say, Patty, it was $7 this week, she would tell you all about the tomato industry and how the government... There was another employee... You never saw him. He worked in the back cleaning dishes. And she said, I don't care where he's from or you know, what his qualifications are. He gets paid cash because he does the dishes faster than anyone. Patty's diner was not legal in any way. Patty's diner was... She now lives in Green Bay, but the email is still pattysdiner at AOL.com, so you can still get there. But she was, as crazy as it sounds, in accordance with biblical theology in her own unique way. And it leads us to understanding that Patty, she was a bully growing up, and she was making penance for being a bully. Seriously. My dad actually hired a woman who grew up with Patty at Evanston Township High School. And, and this woman reported that Patty would bully her every single day because Patty didn't have a good home life. And when she finally went into Patty's diner one day, Patty told her, you'll never pay for food here. See, Patty had this weird sense, mean as she was, she had this weird sense of justice. And just like the prophet Amos, she wasn't, really a likely prophet, right? Amos, a prophet by trade, he wasn't a vocational minister, meaning he didn't get paid to do the work of being a prophet. He wasn't called by the king to report what God has to say to me. He wasn't Nathan. He wasn't like a wilderness prophet like John the Baptist who, who was out there in the wilderness, but really he was a prophet still. People just kind of like he was like a missionary, People supported him. He ate locusts. No, 
Amos was actually just a blue-collar agricultural worker who saw the world for what it was and said, I can't be silent. Amos was a shepherd and a fig tree farmer. And actually, if you read the, the passage from last week, which was read for us, um, that's what it says. He, he, he's reporting. He's, they're like, what are your qualifications to be speaking this way to the king? And he's like, I don't have qualifications. I'm a shepherd and a fig tree farmer. He's an unlikely hero. But when Amos sees his environment becoming an unjust place under King Jeroboam II, Amos says, I cannot stand to live in a place that does not reflect biblical justice. I want to say, I don't know that Amos was necessarily, doesn't say that Amos did this for self-preservation. Doesn't say that if Amos hadn't undone the systems of biblical injustice in Jerusalem or in Israel, that if he had not done that, that, that he would have starved or something. He probably would have been okay. He owned a lot of sheep. He owned a lot of fig trees. He was going to be all right. But when he hears that King Jeroboam is doing something very specific, that he's rejecting, that he's neglecting the poor, and that he's exploiting the poor, allowing the poor to be exploited, he, uh, he snaps. He leaves his figs. He leaves his sheep. He goes right to the devil's doorstep, to the temple of the false gods in the capital, and he just starts ranting and raving. And so your first takeaway today is that if you see injustice, even if you're not a vocational minister, which I don't think any of you are, you're still called to say something. You, you actually don't, it's not, it's not just the pastors or the prophets or the apostles or the televangelists or the social justice workers LMDJ employees. It's not just them that are called to speak against injustice. Every single one of us is called to speak against injustice. And it's because God equips the called. So I want you to hear this today. If somebody has ever told you that you are not qualified to speak against injustice in your circumstance, they lied to you. You are. It's your call. It's your sacred duty to do so. Because Amos, like Patty at her diner, they might not have had a lot of influence, but when they saw something that was wrong, they did something about it. Patty wasn't perfect, neither was Amos. But you are not unqualified enough or too small or not smart enough. You're a servant of the Most High God, and your power comes from that God. Your power comes mightily through the Holy Spirit. In fact, the people who think that they're most qualified often do the worst job. And so when you see injustice, like Amos saw injustice, say something, do something. And so what did Amos see? Well, he saw this. I'm going to read this while I'm tying my shoe because I know you're all thinking about it anyway. Hear this. You trample on the needy, you bring ruin to the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over so that we may offer wheat for sale? When will, I'm sorry, sell grain? And when will the Sabbath so that we may offer wheat for sale? We make the 
Ephah small and the shekel great. We practice deceit with false balances, buying from the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and selling the sweepings of wheat. Read that one more time. Say, when will the moon be over? When, when will I be allowed to get back out into the marketplace so that I can sell my grain? When, when's the Sabbath going to be over when I can't work so that I can offer my wheat? I'm going to make the F great. Practice deceit with false balances, buying from the poor for silver, the needy for the pair of sandals, and selling the sweepings of wheat. Then it continues that because of this, God will bring ruin upon Israel. And I guess my question is, is this really so bad? I mean, is it? It says that they're eager to get back out into the marketplace. Eager to the return to their merchant tents and sell the grain that they had worked hard for. I mean, isn't this like incentive economy at its finest? They're like excited to make money. Isn't this what we're called to be by our culture today? And when they returned, they, they, when, they, when they got out there, they just wanted the best return for their product. My woman who helped raise me was an ex-Catholic nun, and she grew up as the daughter of an Italian merchant in Chicago. He had a small store, groceries and other things. She said, I would always say, you know, oh, this thing that is worth this much. She said, no. She said, something is worth what people will pay for it. Isn't that all that's going on? They're just making good business decisions. They're saying, hey, look, this person who's starving, they'll pay a higher price for less product than a person who has options. I hate to say, this is kind of how hospitals today, they make all their money, right? Going to a hospital, you don't got options. They could charge whatever they want for that surgery because you can't get it somewhere else. They know that they're indispensable. So did the merchants selling wheat to the poor. Didn't say that they were breaking the law, it just perhaps bending it a little bit. I mean, if the poor wanted a fair price, they should have brought their own scales to the market, right? When does personal accountability take over? Isn't it on them for being gullible? Don't keep getting ripped off by Comcast, right? Well, actually, here's the thing. Even though that might be what culture says, it's not for us to judge because the Bible says no. The Bible says it's actually not just on those who have been systematically and socioeconomically oppressed, that it's on those who have the power. Amos says that it's the merchant that who sells a little bit of grain for a lot of money, they're the ones that make ephahs small and shekels great. They're the ones who are going to bring ruin on Israel. The government 
was allowing such practices because Jeroboam II, who I mentioned, he's the king during this time. He's the highest authority. Yeah, he, he had great approval ratings because he was a great military leader and he took what he wanted. And he, you know what he did? He allowed a lot of freedom. He said freedom is important so everybody can treat everybody else however they want. See, he said it's up to the individual to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, right? But what if the individual didn't have bootstraps? Jeroboam did not care. Like I said, it's a little bit like modern society today. This might be hard to hear, but consumer debt, the oppression of people, these are all things that still exist. These are systems that enslave those who can't afford to not be a part of them. The church rarely talks about it. We rarely talk about biblical economic justice. We talk a whole lot about sex and sexuality and, and all these other things that are, that are important in the Bible. But we avoid topics like this because we're all intrinsically a part of these systems. And it would be really, really hard to break those systems. Our society today reflects many of the similarities. We have many ways for the rich to exploit systems that were built by the rich to keep them to, from giving to the poor. Look at the tax code. We have many ways that we keep people in systems and systemic poverty intentionally. Let me give you some examples of that. You can draw a direct line. Dominique Gilliard's book, Rethinking Incarceration, he preached here um, last November. Listen to that sermon, but read his book, Rethinking Incarceration. It's all about restorative justice. He draws a line. It says, if you look historically through slavery, after slavery ended the Emancipation Proclamation, it was reborn under a new name called crop, sharecropping. And then there were these things called black codes employs, employed, which criminalized black life and re-enslaved people for profit and labor. And then it was Jim Crow when that, when that changed, that cried separate but equal. But if you look at any of the pictures from Jim Crow, there was nothing equal about separate. Eventually it turned into closeted job and housing discrimination, redlining in the city of Chicago. Finally it became the war on drugs. Today... It becomes mass incarceration, right? Like these are all the same system by different names. They're all systems that look at biblical justice and say, no, ephahs can be small and shekels can be great. We're not going to acknowledge the inherent value of people's lives. We have for-profit prisons, sentencing disparities, over-policing, unjust, simple, uh, unjust systems that deny people the right to a trial, you're wondering what that is, it's, it's called the plea system. Recommend you listen to the podcast Serial, season three, if you want to learn more about pleas and how judges and criminal courts will discriminate against people who do not take a plea, even if they're innocent of the crime that they committed. The so Southern Poverty Law Center said it this way, and in light of Amos, I want you to think about when Amos is talking about economic justice for people, 
And, and he can't even bear to see it, even though he's just a, a farmer. I want you to hear these words. They should make you shudder a little bit. Statistically, the Southern Poverty Law Center has found that it is better you will spend less time in prison if you are rich and guilty than innocent and poor. We have so many ways that we make ephah small and shekels great. In other words, we have many, many ways in which our society today profits off of systematic and systemic oppression of the poor. And it's not just a unit of measurement. It goes beyond that. It's why we have movements that have to say things that should be obvious, like Black Lives Matter. That should be obvious to Christians, but apparently it's not. Because our systems do not reflect that. And it should break us. And in order to maintain this system of criminalization and economic benefit, the majority of us, the majority in this country has to do something very, very simple. Say nothing. That's the only way that these systems can be maintained. When we see things, when we see the poor being oppressed, when we see people experiencing housing discrimination, when we see people not getting jobs that they're qualified for, when we see people who are not given the benefit of the doubt when they are stopped by civil authorities, when we see all of that and we do nothing, we say nothing, the system persists. But Amos, he couldn't, he couldn't stay silent. And I want to point out here, because we haven't talked about Jesus yet. Jesus, he did the same thing that Amos did. That's what that whole money changers in the temple thing is all about. A lot of people are like, Jesus gets angry sometimes. Money changers in the temple, right? Like, that's, that's that whole thing. That's about Jesus looking at the temple and going, did you learn nothing from Amos? Did you learn nothing? That systematic oppression of the poor is antithetical to the gospel. And more importantly, it's antithetical to the, the, the intrinsic value of human life. The money changers in the temple in that story with Jesus when he goes and he drives them out and calls it a den of robbers, they were, they were uh, setting up booths to sell sacrifices. And just like great America, once you were in the temple, your dove cost like three times more than it did outside. It was exploitation. And so, like I said, I have a book recommendation. A couple weeks ago, it was Prophetic Lament. Today, it's Rethinking Incarceration. But I want to land on this, because it's not just Amos. It's not just Jesus in the temple. Biblical justice, like I said before, is all about reconciliation. That is what it's about at its core. And that's what the Colossians passage was about. That God reconciled God's self to all things through the work of Christ on the cross. And now we have an opportunity. Knowing that all things have been reconciled because of what God has done through Christ, we can either participate in that system of reconciliation or we can participate in the systems of the world that would deny it. 
Those are our options. So lest you think I'm being political, I'm not. I'm just saying at its core that any system, any system that denies the inherent value of human life, that does not enact justice for those who have been wronged because of the color of their skin, their socioeconomic status, whether they have parents or not, you can think of the foster care system, mass incarceration, all of these things, they cut against, they fly in the face of the biblical justice that God demands. And I shudder to think what might happen to us if we do not seek to dismantle those systems.